whenever we start taking hold of or assuming to play the role of the Spirit and to help the Spirit along in bringing about the response the gospel summons people to do, we're going to be off to the races in terms of all kinds of schemes and strategies and devices. It, it all falls into a sort of a place where we think we can do it. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 86, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Well, I stumbled upon a subject that I at least found interesting and thought I'd ask Dr. Venema and Dr. Beach to elaborate a little bit more on, that being the subject of preparatory grace or preparationism, a topic you'll typically hear in the context of soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation. Here's what they have to say about it. Well, for this podcast, we want to consider the topic of preparationism, uh, prevenient grace, different conceptions of what that phrase means, and within uh, Reformed Church history, prevenient grace or a preparatory grace has been used in different uh, contexts, uh, different writers. Some affirm its legitimate use. Others are weary of uh, such terminology. Uh, one way you can get into this topic is by using a, an author like Francis Turretin, who addresses this question, and in typical Turretin-like uh, methodology, he asks questions rather precisely. Specifically, he asks the question whether in the first moment of conversion, the first moment of conversion, whether humans are merely passive or whether human will cooperates in some measure with the grace of God that's active in this. Regarding the question, first moment of conversion, Turretin would argue, yes, humans are purely passive in that first moment. Whereas uh, others would argue, uh, no, there's some sort of cooperation and a prevenient grace has been exercised by God to enable human beings to cooperate, to co-work with God at this first moment of conversion. Well, Puritan and the Reformed generally have denied that, and Arminians and semi-Pelagians and the like affirm that. And uh, that gets us into the question uh, when you start talking about prevenient grace or preparatory grace, what do you mean by the term? And uh, Turretin, of course, being a polemicist, is concerned to make quite clear that the Reform didn't agree with the Arminian position. However, in his discussion, he will acknowledge that the term a kind of preparation or the term prevenient grace can be used in a good sense. But like all such terms, what sense? And are we making sense when we talk about such things? So just that comment 
as maybe an introduction into this. Uh, Mark, Mark is correct. Most Reformed theologians historically will acknowledge, I'll just use Herman Bovinkin as an, as an illustration, that we may speak of preparation for within God's providence, a preparatory, he uses the phrase preparatory grace, by that he means that God orchestrates and works in a whole variety of circumstances within his providential ordering of all things to bring people along, to prepare in a sense. To It's what might some people call today in another context pre-evangelism, that he, by way of illustration, talks about, well, even within a covenantal context, that you were nurtured in a Christian home, that you were taught the word of God, you received um, the sacrament. Now, this can be get us off topic, but just as a way of illustrating that no event in the life of those whom God ultimately saves by a powerful working of his spirit with the word in granting new birth, and that's the passivity that uh, Turretin is getting at. No one can give birth to himself, either naturally or spiritually. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. It may be an act that is mediated or the word is used as an instrument together with the sacraments, but the Spirit alone authors that birth. And as Christ says, no one enters the kingdom nor sees the kingdom absent having by the Spirit, the Spirit working alone. It's not a cooperative activity granting the new birth. And it's only in that context that actual conversion occurs. People are actually through the word by the working of the spirit brought to faith and repentance. Um, but having made that comment about preparatory grace, the problem with preparationism or an understanding of a gracious work prevenient that is preceding the actual coming to faith on the part of any person addressed by the gospel is that God's grace ultimately depends upon an independent, unmoved, that is from the outside or by God, independent act of the will in cooperating with or consenting, acquiescing to the promptings of God's grace. So the decisive moment that brings about the actual conversion of any person is what they do with God's grace. And where it really gets problematic in terms of gospel ministry is if you distinguish preparatory grace, as I defined it a moment ago, from preparation-ism, you have this exaggerated endeavor to so order and craft the time and circumstances during which a person is presented the gospel or the law is preached with the gospel that makes it in some fashion, a work we can effect, so orchestrate, coordinate, as to secure a more likely prospect of the person being saved. And now that wanders off into really bad stuff in terms of what are called uh, new measures, think Finney, sometimes even a certain kind of creation of an anxious bench. You beat people up with the law of God long enough, you'll finally bring them to their knees, and you craft a certain style of ministry. I have an example. My wife was a nurse many years ago and was in, working in a nursing home, and there was a family whose 
older father, grandfather was on his deathbed. And they were very worried that he hadn't experienced a true conversion. And she would come home at the end of the day to caring for this man and others at the nursing home with stories about what, and this may sound like I'm making it up, but it's, I trust my wife's testimony. They had pulled the curtains, so the room was dark. Now this is old history, so it was a record player, not a CD or, you know, a boombox using Bluetooth. They, they were playing religious music and they were engaged in all kinds of, call them religious exercises, sort of almost medieval, penitential, say the rosary, you know, the Lord's Prayer 40 times and all of, they were doing all sorts of things. Now they were well-meaning. But that's sort of a dramatic illustration, <clears throat> and there, you could repeat the stories, all kinds of stories, where we really sort of take the matter into our own hands when we're ultimately to, to rely upon and minister the word and the confidence that the Spirit working when and where and how he pleases will do the work. It's not ours to do. I think one of the things that Turretin says, in addition to the, his worry about Arminian views of preparationism, as <clears throat> he goes after a Roman Catholic doctrine, something that is historically known as congruism. And simply put, it's the notion that there are times and places, circumstances that you can, so I used the word earlier, orchestrate or take advantage of that from the point of view of the one who's converted or from the point of view of those who are seeking someone's conversion you can manipulate that and thereby sort of secure a more likely, as I put it earlier, result. But the ultimate problem here is what Mark was saying, quoting Turretin. You're viewing the work of God's grace in terms of its efficacy to ultimately depend upon something we do and something the sinner does. And that's where historically the consensus among Reformed theologians has always been rather reserved and viewing that kind of preparationism with suspicion. Even in the Reformed tradition, a theologian by the name of Claude Pauljean, uh, he advocated a kind of Reformed congruism in which you know, God knows us so well, so intimately, the recesses of our soul. He knows what strings to pluck, you know, how to strum each of us just in the right way as to finesse us and manipulate us to bring us along to this uh, state of conversion. Well, none of that's untrue as such. God does know us that way. But the reason the Reform didn't go along with Paujan on this is because dead is dead, and it takes resurrection from the dead, a direct enlivening and activity of the Spirit as the sole cause to take us from death to life. Now, the Reformed were also very, very concerned not to treat humans as stalks and blocks. So, yeah, as a corpse, a spiritual corpse, you need rebirth. But upon that, we're treated as rational uh, moral agents, and our own wills indeed are engaged, our own rational faculties are engaged, but that's all a work of grace as well. Now, if you wanted to talk about 
a kind of preparatory grace, not unto conversion, but that God has been orchestrating things in your life throughout your life and giving you experiences and having people be influential, spiritually influential, that at the time wasn't influential, but subsequent to conversion. After the fact, you can look back and say, here God was, here was a preparatory grace I never acknowledged as such. It's not a grace that brought me to conversion. But subsequent to conversion, I can own this activity, this providential blessing of God, and reflect back on it. And it's something that he was preparing my life in this way through these actions. But that's very different. That's a preparation not to get converted, but maybe to to be blessed and to be a, a, a better, more fit Christian servant down the way. So once again, the Reformed are, are very concerned that we don't think it, something short of rebirth gets us ready for rebirth. A, a dead corpse, you know, to use that analogy, doesn't get sort of a, enlivened by something else to be made alive. It takes divine miracle, in other words. And then, so this gets into the efficacy of grace and the, the relation of word to the work of the Spirit. And there, too, the Reformed uh, were very concerned not to devalue the word or undermine the word or leave it on a shelf because it's the work of the Spirit. If anything, they kind of came down at, you know, the way Turretin says, the first moment requires something that only the Spirit can do. But even that, especially in the case of adults, that moment can be, it can coincide with the work of the word through the spirit. So, you know, Bob Inc., as some of you might know, uh, devoted a whole book to various controversies in the Netherlands during his life, one of which was this question of the spirit's operation. Does it work immediately or immediately? And, you know, you can frame a question in a bad way. It, it's either or. Well, the answer is sort of both and. It works immediately, unmediatedly, to bring us from death to life. But it's very mediated. The, way the, the work of the Spirit through the Word is crucial. And that's what we talk about, means of grace. Not that we give the power of God to the means, but they're the means God's pleased to use by which to affect his power in us. So, prevenient grace, preparatory grace, once again, definitions are everything. But historically, this has been a term more favorable to Roman Catholics and uh, those who confess some sort of Wesleyan-Arminian-style theology and uh, the Reformed then have been quite guarded in making use of such terms. Yeah, what Mark says is is excellent. One of the things that Bavink, and this is typical of Bavink, when he treats the question in the context of effectual calling, of preparatory grace, he says, well, the Reformed don't reject the notion of God working so as to prepare us in a diversity of ways, but they're very opposed to a certain pietism and methodism that restricts that. They have a 
a robust view of providence and of creation. And, you know, grace perfects nature or creation, but it doesn't annihilate or deny it. It works through and by means of precisely the order God himself first created. And and that's very important in terms of what Mark said about the Spirit's work, even when we affirm a certain passivity in the act of new birth, never abrogates or overrides its healing and restorative, the work of the Spirit, so that we respond and do as we're called, summoned to do, and it's our action as well as God's. And it's not partly God's, partly ours. Where Methodism and Pietism and where Preparationism creeps into the Reformed churches, I think, is when you separate law, the twofold form of the word, it comes in the form of law in its first function as that which exposes our sinfulness and need of God's grace, and in the form of the gospel word concerning God's saving grace in Christ, you get a heavy accent on preparing people to hear the gospel by first flattening them by means of the law. And I think it was even uh, the Reformed Baptist Spurgeon who once said, it's a kind of preaching that lingers long over one's sin and keeps you worried that you haven't come to a keen enough awareness of your sin in order to come to Christ. And he says, I'd rather they come immediately and we can tell them more about their sin later and they'll grow in their knowledge of their sin. They don't have to come to a full understanding of that in the first moment of their responding to the gospel. But you get a kind of law preaching. And it it does occur in Reformed churches somewhat analogously to the way it occurs in Arminian context. I was sent to an Arminian school when I was a teenager for three years and I heard not a few gospel evangelistic messages. And that was this, the craft. There were, you had people come who were very skilled at getting us to some place where we would be more aware of and even question whether we were Christians if we'd been members of the church. And um, that became a sort of a precondition for the gospel word that is spoken, and then it falls to you to decide. It's a The, the fundamental point that I think Reformed people want always to emphasize in this area is that it is God's grace initiative. He acts before us, and he brings us graciously and in a way that respects our uniqueness as creatures to do what the gospel calls us to do. But whenever we start taking hold of or assuming to play the role of the Spirit and to help the Spirit along in bringing about the response the gospel summons people to do, we're going to be off to the races in terms of all kinds of schemes and strategies and devices, some better than others perhaps, but um, it, it all falls into a sort of a place where we think we can do it. Yeah, it's, it's quite problematic when we think that our cooperation is what's getting it done. And the reform don't deny that there's a, if I may use the word cooperation, but it's subsequent to rebirth. And, you know, the, the canons of Dort talk about this so well, that the spirit in his effective operation opens closed hearts, softens hard hearts, circumcises uncircumcised hearts, infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing. 
the stubborn one compliant. The point is, is the will now renewed and being activated is itself active. So yes, you do respond in faith. Yes, you do repent of your sins. Yes, you do uh, embrace Christ. It, your, your, your soul, your, your faith, your, your life is active. Your mind is active. But all of that activity is because of a grace prior, a, a miraculous grace prior and active in you. So thankful for that grace of God, without which we would never be saved. Thank you, professors, for speaking on this issue of preparatory grace. I certainly found it fascinating, and I hope you as our listeners did as well. Next week, Dr. Venema and Dr. Beach round out their discussion by addressing a matter you'll need to keep your ear attentive to. The conditionality of the covenant of grace. Are there conditions in this covenant? Tune in next time to find out. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.